This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 1st of June 2022 at home in Wicklow. And you'll hear me say at the start of it that I didn't know where it was going to go. But I kicked it off with three discussion points. One was about a revelation from my daughter. Two was about a very large plant that has just been discovered in Australia. And three was in relation to a racist incident where a young black actress who is per, who is playing a part in the new Star Wars series uh, on TV has been subjected to loads of racist abuse uh, on social media. So I have a bit of look. I have a bit of a look at those three things before getting to the main topic of the episode this week, which turned out to be a big discussion about Ray Liotta and his career and his um, his amazing charisma um, and acting chops and how I've liked him for uh, a very long time and what he represented to me and what I liked about his acting and I look at a, a couple of his bigger movies um, one of those is actually Field of Dreams which leads me to end up talking a bit about Kevin Costner and his journey and how Costner sort of ended up representing certain um, boomer aspirations and fantasies Uh, and so I talk a little bit about that as well Um, so all of that is coming up Um, what I failed to do in my discussion about Ray Liotta is mentioned three of his movies in which he gave three great performances and um, they slipped my mind when I was recording but I'll just quickly mention them now um, for the sake of completion Um, and they are Copland and Hannibal and Narc Um, Copland directed by James Mangold Hannibal directed by Ridley Scott and Narc directed by Joe Carnahan and Ray Liotta played uh, members of law enforcement in each of those three movies but three very different characters and in Hannibal played to darkly comic effect at the end of his um, of his participation in that story uh, at the hands of Hannibal Lecter brilliantly done but very heavy and sinister and scary in Narc and uh, a great uh, good guy support to Sylvester Stallone in the cynical Copland where Stallone plays the the small town sheriff trying to keep law and order in a, a New Jersey suburb where most of the inhabitants are corrupt cops who work their day jobs in New York and uh, Sylvester Stallone comes up against all of them but Ray Liotta is the one guy who kind of stands by him uh, and it's a, it's a very sympathetic character. So anyway, those three were omissions uh, which I wanted to correct here. So if you like movies and you like Ray Liotta or Ray Liotta if you prefer, um, you'll really enjoy this episode. If you don't like him, you won't. So don't listen. But you've got this far so maybe uh, maybe stick it out for a bit longer and see, see, what, uh, see what appeals to you then. Okay, I'll see you there in three seconds. Bye. Ooh, not gonna change my mind. 
dream behind. Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How are you? How's it going? Are you well? This episode is only going to last as long as my voice lasts. So it's been a week since I last sat down at the mic and I've been sick ever since. I know it's terribly sad for all of us. It's terribly sad for all of us. Very big man pain. Uh, Some wild dose just attacked me um, starting a week ago today. And yeah, I've been putting off recording for as long as possible. So I'd had as much, so I'd have as much of my voice available, available to me as possible. And I'm finding even still that I'm compromised. <laughs> We've been compromised. Don't speak to anybody. Um, yeah, I'm compromised in every part of my uh, my speaking apparatus is is under pressure. So so bear with me. I'll, I'll do my best, and hopefully, hopefully the vocal quality is is sufficiently okay that it won't be uh, it won't be a distraction. That said, this week's episode is one in which I am setting out on a journey and I do not know where it's going to lead. So there's a few different things popping around my head. So um yes, today's bag is a bit of a a bit of a potpourri, if you will. <laughs> a hodgepodge. And I'm not entirely sure where it's it's going to land ultimately. By the time I finished I'll know. And then uh, I will have addressed that and put a bit of shape on it in the in the prologue. Um, but yes, let's see. Let's just see what happens. Bear with me. June, June, June. June is upon us. It is the first of June, and yeah, beautiful morning this morning. My goodness, so lovely. There's so much, as my father would say, abundant growth. The growth is unreal. The combination of a little bit of a little bit of good weather and rain, uh, with the Irish climate, green. The green is just so vibrant at the moment. And in our own little garden here at hashtag blessed, early in the morning with the sun coming through the the trees, coming through the leaves bit of morning dew around some overnight rainfall still sitting on the leaves and occasionally falling in the sunlight i'm sorry it was just just beautiful too beautiful not to stop and take it in and that's how we roll that's how we roll here at hashtag blessed we are appreciative of our blessings appreciative of what has been laying on for us and so I felt grateful, grateful to be here this morning. Um, yeah, really, really nice. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sitting on a little, um, a little mug of, of my own making, not the mug, but the contents, a cinnamon tea 
so I'm using a cinnamon tea bag but there's cinnamon in there and turmeric and honey and fresh pieces of ginger and that's what I'm hoping is going to sustain sustain this speaking apparatus this biomechanical equipment uh, until the end of the episode yes speaking of sitting on things we have in our in our lovely abode one of those little plastic folding stools or folding steps you know it's only eight inches off the floor if even that and something you could stand on just to give yourself a bit of a lift or something you could sit on if you wanted to sit very low to the ground so it's in my daughter's room and it is pink with white dots on it and I was in my daughter's room last night trying to tidy it up and get it ship shape before she went to bed and I noticed she had written on the white dots um one word in each dot this is a little habit of our daughters that we we can't quite break (laughs) in her she has a fondness for writing on things you'd prefer she didn't write on and sees no problem with it um so uh, and a case in point my wife found her a very nice map of the world to hang on her wall uh a very large white canvas with the world displayed in its conventional um, northern hemisphere western orientation with the americas to the left of the canvas then the atlantic ocean and then center is europe sitting on top of africa before you drift right to asia and australia sits down in that bottom right corner and all the countries on this this uh, map of the world are in various shades of pink and mauve and purple um but not long after it went up on my wall sorry not long after it went up on my daughter's wall we came into the room and were horrified to see that she'd uh, put big thick navy blue markered love hearts all over australia (laughs) i was like what the hell you know listen it's great that you love australia but don't um don't don't write on the bloody map of the world. Um, and she's, she's still, <laughs> she's, she's got a, a fine willful streak. So if, if I raise that now, she'd, just be, she'd be annoyed by it. She'd be irritated. Be like, just what the hell? What's your problem? In any case, written on these little dots on top of the little folding stool uh, were... A number of words very simply written in my daughter's handwriting five words dear god i love you and i was like oh okay so i immediately grabbed the stool brought it down to where my daughter was and i said what's the meaning of this what is the meaning of this I've told you a million times. There's no God. We're atheists in this household. I didn't do that. (laughs) Uh, Maybe in um, 
Richard Dawkins's household, they do that sort of thing. But in in this household, we each we each plough our own furrow in, in areas of of belief and faith. I think that's sacred. So, I I was quite struck. I was quite struck by by what I you know by what I came across, and I thought, well, look, this is pretty normal. This is very normal for for kids to engage with this this idea of of God. And I certainly have memories of myself as a kid, and maybe at a similar age, you know, around eight, um, occasionally praying. Um, but it never, it, I don't know, it never, it was, it was always a bit of an experiment, really. I, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if I really believed, and I certainly didn't invest enormous amounts of thinking space trying to decide whether or not God existed. But my my daughter has a very sincere side, and I saw that written there, and I just thought, far out. This is kind of. I actually thought it was kind of beautiful. Once I got over my initial shock, <laughs> I was like, "It's and it, it you know it recalls what I was saying last week. It recalls what I was saying last week about how children." meet the world and that that extraordinary capacity they have to be fully immersed in that engagement with whatever is the object of their fascination at that moment and you know what my daughter wrote on the the stool is it sort of encapsulated that feeling for me. And I just thought, okay. So she's on that journey. And I mean, I, I'll ask her at some point. I'm curious. I mean, she, she may put God in a similar territory to Santa Claus, um, whom she still holds in extremely high regard and believes in very deeply, which is as it should be for an eight-year-old. Although she was telling me about a, a kid in school who um, who was assuring everybody that it's it's their parents who put the tree, they put the put the presents out at Christmas. Um, and my daughter was, my daughter and others in her class were very disbelieving of this, and she rationalised that the 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 kid in question, the uh, the whistleblower, if you will. Uh, she rationalised that well he's from India so they probably don't celebrate Christmas in India and I said that's right that's right so you know different uh, different things are happening in different parts of the world different cultures so I, I was quite I was quite happy with uh, the way she worked that one out um, but there you go um, dear God I love you until I don't Um We'll see. We'll see where where that one goes. She'll um, she'll work it out for herself. So, what else did I see today? I was just perusing the headlines, and a couple of things jumped out. One thing that jumped out was a headline from Australia. Something that Australia does really, really well is 
plants and animals. Um, apart from other things that you know are, are great about Australia, but the uh, the flora and fauna continue to uh, to gain notice for for all the right reasons. Um, I remember years ago as a kid, actually, I did a I did a project, a school project, on Australia, and I found such, you know such amazing images, and it was the it was the colours I think that I was attracted to. Just the the brightness, the brilliance of the colours of the animal life and the the topography, the landscapes, the the, the water, uh, and I think it was that more than anything else that made me feel, my God, Australia is an extraordinary place. Uh, as I've as I've spoken about previously, my 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 general impression of of Ireland and um, of of what I saw of England on television was that really and you know don't, let's not forget I was a kid growing up in the the seventies and eighties was that Ireland and England were very brown countries very brown muddy wet dark brown grey depressed. <laughs> And distinctly uncool. Um, and I wasn't hating on England or Ireland. That was just, that was the colour palette, that's all. That was sort of a, an objective observation. Um, and so places that had bright colours, they reflected a sort of a, a cultural, um, a cultural confidence. And... In Australia's case, a, a confidence born of the, the natural world and that, that country's uh, extraordinary diversity of wildlife and climate and landscape. Um, and I would, I, at that stage of my life, I would have had no idea about the, the colonial history and the, the dark passage of the indigenous eradication um, of the, of the, the, the sort of eradication, if not genocide, of the indigenous peoples of Australia, uh, Aborigines. Um, so there was no there was no dark cloud hovering over my understanding of Australia and what it was. I'm not even sure at that stage if I realised it had been uh, a penal colony. Um, I don't think I knew any of that stuff. So my, my project, <laughs> my project was, was very limited. It was very limited. So I wasn't winning any prizes for my, my research skills at that age. Um, but anyway, today I noticed a headline saying that Australia has just discovered it has the largest single plant in the world. And I'm not talking about like a, a giant fern or rubber plant or aloe vera on the shelf. This is a, a sea plant that's sitting in the ocean off the west coast of Australia. And it's called, oh, I want to say Poseidon, but that's not right. It's Pisidian or something like that. The Latin name is like Pisidian australis. Um... And I think 
in English it's known as uh, I want to say like ribbon ribbon wire or something like that. Um, I'm just going to double check that. So ribbon weed, sorry, ribbon weed or fiber ball weed, and that full Latin name is Posidonia, 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 Posidonia or Posidonia australis, and it's yeah, it's basically seagrass, seagrass, yeah. And what has been discovered is a seagrass meadow off the west coast of Australia in the ocean there. And what scientists thought were different um, different uh, plants of the same species, 180 kilometers apart, they realized were actually part of the same single plant. So it is absolutely enormous. Um, 20 the size of 20,000 football fields is what I read and I was thinking you know we understand we hear that we hear someone say something like that we instinctively go that's really big but then you don't actually do the visual in your head but you think about it standing on a football field now I don't know if they're talking about well I saw that article in the Guardian so it's probably a soccer pitch they're talking about and then you double a soccer pitch and then you do double that again and then keep going and keep going and keep going and then you start to get a sense of hold on one single plant is covering this entire terrain um later in the article it said the plant was the same as the island of manhattan three times over so don't know if you've been to manhattan but that's a pretty that's a pretty bloody big plant so well done australia giving us uh giving us something big and amazing they reckon the plant is four and a half thousand years old maybe i'm misunderstanding what i read but that's that's what it said four and a half thousand years ago is when when this plant started growing so uh hats off uh chapeau to australia the posidonia australis congrats Another thing I spotted on the headlines this morning and it just jumped out at me because it's um, it's been a bit topical for me lately and some of the things I've been reading and consuming. Um, there's a young black actress on the new uh, a new TV show, a Star Wars spin-off. It is the basically it's the adventures of Obi-Wan Kenobi who famously in the first film, the first Star Wars movie in 1977, was played by Sir Alec Guinness. And then when the Star Wars movies were rebooted, um, Ewan McGregor played the played the the younger um, the younger Obi-Wan Kenobi. And now he's back. He's back to play Obi-Wan in a series and there is a young black actress in that series and the headline that caught my attention was um that this black actress was getting tons of racist abuse sent to her on social media her name is moses ingram and i haven't seen the show i've no idea it it seems to be going down very well i'm not sure i'll bother seek it out but um yeah I, I, it's 
I mean, I said the other week, I was talking about it, and I said that that the mayor of Buffalo had said there's no place for racism in, uh, you know, in America or in their society. And I was arguing that, look, racism's not going anywhere. Um, it's it's just become part of, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was kind of questioning my own beliefs. Like, I'm not trying to be cynical about it. I'm certainly not jaded about it. I'm, I don't feel blasé about it. Um, but I don't know if I'm shocked by it. You could say you're disappointed. Um, I don't know, offended, um, concerned. I mean, they're, they're just such weak and adequate words. But fundamentally, fundamentally, just go with the, the, the very basic facts of the situation in this case where simply there's a character in a show on television and because of her skin color she gets abused now that to me you know where my where my kind of judgment goes it kind of goes to the the intellectual capacity of the people doing the abusing i think you you must be colossally dense like extraordinarily anti-biologically moronic to think that the that that, that the per- person's skin color is sufficient reason to vilify them um but then as i argued a couple of weeks ago the the transmission of hatred um seems to be very much out there and easily accessed and has no problem getting its uh, its signal broadcast. Um, and of course, and of course, last week's episode was meant to be a counter to all of that sort of. Yeah, it, it's you know, it's it's not feel good stuff. It's not feel good. It's not feel good stuff at all. Um, but there you go. So I don't know. I don't. I, mean, I, I don't know what my point is. It's. I suppose what I always think of in these situations where you're looking at repeated social failing or a repeated social um eruption um that's i double r not e r um you, you know a, a a sundering of social connection social connectivity um cohesion civic regard uh I just, I just come back and go. Who, who's challenging the thought processes? Who's challenging the behaviour? Who, and and I think you know, in a way, it's not. You know, education is always a huge part of this. But of course, you're talking about generational attitudes, generational attitudes, inherited attitudes, uh, entrenched, embedded attitudes that are normalised. And embedded in one's culture, in one's little pocket of broader society, or in one's one's little pocket of of what of tradition. I don't know. I don't know. 
but I suppose what I think if we put this into a self-defense context the more you allow someone to hit you the more they think they're entitled to hit you the more you allow someone to hit you the less capable you're going to be of defending yourself because each subsequent hit is taking away your power it's weakening weakening you it's destabilizing you um so one of the most effective self defense strategies is the the instant counterattack um or even better to counterattack <laughs> to counterattack before the other person has attacked you so you can see they're going to attack you and you anticipate and you move before they move um so there are the, these strategies are laid out in 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 karate and have their own sort of names uh, i think that one is sen no sen but yeah the idea is you strike before you're struck and you know that attack is coming so it's not just i'm hitting someone because <laughs> because it feels good um so i do i do believe that it's that's the way to go i mean as much as possible like the more people just call it out and challenge it um the more likely the more likely there is a chance of change you know of 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 reversing the tide of changing the flow of of energy and in this case this kind of horrible racist shite is what it is really um anyway so my um my sympathies to that 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 actress who is just you know she's just an artist she's just an actress trying to do her thing um and she has to put up with that crap um yeah interesting um and just one other note in that area uh i was again i was listening to that uh i was listening to higher learning that podcast i mentioned um in recent episodes I was listening to another episode of that where the guys on Higher Learning were talking about the the primary school shooting in Texas in uh, Valverde and just talking about guns, guns, gun control, the Second Amendment of the Constitution in America, the right to bear arms, the ongoing problematic situation in America with guns, gun violence, mass shootings, um... There have been apparently, and again, I, I got this from the podcast. There have been more mass shootings in America this year than there have been days of the year so far. Um, it's like that sort of stuff is is mind blowing. But um, but yeah, Van Lathan um, was talking about his relationship with with guns and being in a tough community in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, where people, you know, the way he described it, just a very, very deprived um, area of, of Baton Rouge and guns just being a normal part of the sort of um, day-to-day living, the sort of, you know, the survive, you know, the survival game. And he spoke very, 
very eloquently and passionately and movingly about um, about gun violence and how he's been affected by it. Um, and he is a gun own, owner himself, but in light of recent events, he's uh, he, he came to a decision uh, on the show about about basically deciding not to to keep a gun in his home anymore. He spoke very well and he had a really interesting guest on who's been advocating for much tighter gun control uh, policy in the States for some time. So um, again, higher learning, go and seek it out if you're interested in this thing at all. Um, I think it's uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Anyway, all of that, all of that, I don't know, is that, uh, we're about 20 minutes in, are we? All of that was just a bit of preamble, really. Oh my goodness, half an hour. Where does the time go? Um, do you know, one of the main things I wanted to talk about today was was Ray Liotta, the actor. The actor Ray Liotta passed away last week. He died. Um, I haven't followed up the cause of death, but he was he was only 67. And I saw that headline flash up on my phone. And it doesn't happen with every actor or artist or famous person or writer or whatever. But with some of them it does, and he was one of them for me. I just got that, that kind of kick in the gut. Um, that little pang of instant sort of sadness just that little jerk in your gut that goes whoa another one is gone um you know prince and david bowie they would have been one as well uh philip roth funnily enough when he passed away i I sort of felt that as well I've, I've, i've really been a big fan of his writing for years and years but um yeah ray liotta Radiota, Radiota. I think think he says Radiota himself. Um, An actor who just had such a compelling presence on screen. Um, We know we we all watch movies, and we we enjoy different actors, um, and we've all seen thousands of actors in our lifetimes. And various various uh, shows and movies, um, and the simple fact is, some actors have a more electric presence on screen than others, and I think Ray Liotta was one of those actors. Um, Denzel Washington is probably another. Um, you know, Brad Pitt is in a different category, for example. Like, Brad Pitt's a very attractive actor. He's a very attractive sort of energy and sort of languid kind of energy and easy uh, persona on screen. And, of course, um, a fine physical specimen. Um, if you you know, if you want to look at a good-looking man, Brad Pitt's there for you all day long. But Brad Pitt doesn't have an ounce of that fire and that energy and that emotionality that Ray Liotta had in spades and no matter what he was in he to me he always brought this emotional weight and this effortless very believable and very internalized backstory it was always there and as luck would have it, he was quite a compelling guy to look at. 
um, with those blazing bright blue eyes. Um, just a really cool, good-looking guy on screen. And I, of course, I, I've, I've taken in a few of his movies just to revisit what I liked about him so much. Um, and one of the most obvious ones I could have gone for would have been Goodfellas. But I'd watched that relatively recently, so I didn't feel the need to revisit it. Um, and in, and, and you know, that that is, it's one of the movies that would be, you know, has been most typically cited in the tributes and the obituaries. Um, but as much as he is the driving force of that story, because he plays the the narrator and he gives us the the audience view of. Uh, of the mafia and he's one of the you know the trio uh, of guys driving the action in that movie the other two being Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and that movie was 1990 so I think he was I think he was around 35 then Um, and he you know he's great in it he's great and he goes on this great journey and rises in the ranks as far as he can go um because he's not eligible to proceed higher in the ranks because of his, uh, he's got Irish in him, he's not fully Italian. Um, but again, what you see in Goodfellas, and it's something I spoke about before, um, in one of my earlier episodes where I talked about learning masculinity from the movies, and there's a type of male character and a type of male actor that I've always been drawn to um, from a very young age and it's it's these guys who have that bruised ma- masculinity so they're not you know like Stallone Schwarzenegger the muscle men um, they were grand like they were fine and you know I, I can enjoy those movies and I did enjoy those movies and I can revisit them and enjoy them but they're very sort of one note and much more cartoonish and it's not that's not to cast aspersions on the acting talents of either Schwarzenegger, and how can I not laugh when I say acting talents and Schwarzenegger together? Um, like Schwarzenegger was solid as long as you gave him very particular things to do, I think. Um, and Stallone, Stallone is, I think, a really underrated actor. Actually, a really underrated actor. I think he has a lot of good stuff going on. Um, and there's much more intelligence and subtlety in Stallone's acting than you might give him credit for, um, particularly in the first Rocky movie. And then if you revisit staying with the Rocky franchise, you could go back and watch Creed from a few years ago, um, where Michael B. Jordan plays the illegitimate son of, um, of uh, Apollo Creed. And convinces an aging uh, Rocky to 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 train him, and he's he's lovely in that show, in that movie. No, but but anyway, Leota Leota, he typified for me that kind of you know the wounded soul in 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 in, in all the characters he played. He always had that sort of you know he's either on the verge of incandescent rage or are very genuine tears of anguish um, and 
I just always found him so, so attractive and so appealing. And he always just seemed to have integrity. His characters stood up um, regardless of what they were doing. And maybe that's and and look, that's probably Ray Liotta's quality as a person. I mean, this is how movie actors work. So much of themselves um, is there on screen. And it's only when you get the extreme method actors like Daniel Day Lewis who kind of er- eradicate every part of themselves before they, immer- you know, immerse themselves in the character. Now that brings another level of quality. Um, and I mean, a lot of actors say they're char- they're method actors. And then the results don't really take your breath away. Unlike Day Lewis, who I think uh, he still punches so, so high. Um, and I, I hope his uh, his alleged retirement is, is one that gets abandoned and he comes back and does more work because he, he's always so good to watch. Um, but Leota, again, just a couple of movies that I'd like to talk about briefly. Um, I went back and I rewatched a more recent movie, one from ten years ago called "Killing Them Softly," um, where I mean that's basically a story of kind of small town, small, small scene kind of organized crime, low level stuff, but there are consequences if you mess up. And Ray Liotta runs a card game, um, and. It's ripped off. He runs a card game that's frequented by, you know, gangsters and the underworld. And it's ripped off by a couple of very low-level guys. And Ray Liotta has to pay the price. Now, he's not in the movie very long, but he he just brings, he brings a kind of a vulnerability to that character. And he brings character. He's like, he's never, he's never bland. He was never bland. He always had something going on. Um, and it's worth checking that out. I didn't re-watch it, but I remember being really, really, really fond of his performance in Blow. That must be about 20 years old now or more. The, the, the Johnny Depp is the main character in that. That's based on... It's, a, it's based on a true story, isn't it? Some The dude who basically brought Coke to America. And I don't mean Coca-Cola. I mean cocaine. And Ray Liotta played his father in that. And he was such a sympathetic character because he basically could see what his son was doing, but he never stopped being there for him. He never stopped loving him. And his heart was broken by him. Um, And Ray Liotta can't be that much older than Johnny Depp, really. Um, But he played his dad very convincingly in that. Um, I think that's that would be one I would say, go and check it out just for... Not for the glorification of cocaine and the 70s and Johnny Depp, um, but for simply for Ray Liotta's performance. Um, yeah. I. What else did I, I look at? Field of Dreams. There was another one, though. There was another one. Hold on. Let me just think for a millisecond. Oh, yeah. I know what it was. It was. Um, Something wild. Fascinating. 1986. And Something Wild is typically described as a yuppie nightmare movie. So you think the 80s in America 
Reaganomics and the, the yuppie era. Uh, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. The celebration of the accumulation of wealth uh, at whatever cost. The suits, uh, brokers, shysters um, and just reveling in in power derived from money and so writers and yeah that is something I must talk about another time you know writers come up with the stories writers see the the fault lines they see the cracks and it's writers who come up with the stories and go let's have a look at this um and it probably you know for whatever the social issues are at the time or the prevailing social dynamics it's writers who get those stories and go let's have a let's you know let's let's bring the lens in tight on this situation and i suppose in terms of the yuppie yuppie nightmare the yuppie scare the idea was of course with all the wealth being accumulated and the sort of the wealth gap and the social depri- deprivation that was everywhere in poor communities in the states the fear of course was well some scary person's going to take all this away from away from me take away my perfect life i mean this is lampooned to to great effect in trading places going back a couple of years earlier again with dan Aykroyd and um eddie murphy dan Aykroyd is the yuppie and these two very cynical financiers decide to swap Live swap the lives of Dan Aykroyd, the yuppie, and uh, Eddie Murphy, the the street hustler, the con man, to show. Well, we can turn the we can turn this you know black kid on the street into a polished uh, money guy, um, and it's actually very funny. There's some really funny stuff in that. Some very dated stuff as well. Maybe no scene more dated than the the impromptu sort of party that Eddie Murphy um, has in his fancy new um, his fancy new house where Denim Elliott is his, his butler. And there's some wild <laughs> early 80s, late 70s crazy disco dancing going on um, uh, with her street life kind of pimpish figures in there as well. But the, the satire of the money scene and the yuppies is really hilarious. Dan Aykroyd rocking up to his tennis club at one point and the the, the the girlfriends of the other guys just sitting around in their pastel shades and Dan Aykroyd's old buddies in their tennis whites just tut-tutting at the stage of, stage of him as he comes in in some you know, dubious coat off the street and they won't help him. But it's very, it's, you know, it's a lovely little sketch. But anyway, this yuppie scare, yuppie nightmare idea Something Wild, directed by Jonathan Demme, who would later go on and do Silence of the Lambs, but also had was also well known for his facility for directing music. He famously did the Talking Heads documentary movie or concert movie, Stop Making Sense. And Something Wild is very simple. Jeff Daniels plays the the yuppie character, young yuppie, and Melanie Griffith basically seduces and tricks Jeff Daniels to go on the road with her on this uh, illicit kind of road trip and yeah they, they fall in love and it's all a bit crazy and they're kind of doing a bit of role play and Jeff's pretending to be 
her um, her husband and they rock up to a school reunion in her hometown and then the movie and that's all fine it's all good and Jonathan Demi has a great feel for for character all the little small roles are full of colour and character and they're entertaining and it's a little bit wacky and a little bit out there but it's all good and you're thinking yeah this is all fine but then at the high at the high school reunion the movie finds another gear because that's when Ray Liotta appears as Melanie Griffith's psychopathic ex-husband who's just out of prison and again blazing with this psychopathic energy good looking aggressive passive aggressive charming dangerous a little bit unhinged and looking absolutely fantastic um and that i think that might have been his first movie actually and he just kind of took off from there um but he is electric electric in that movie um and the movie comes to a you think it's all you just think it's going to be this kind of rom-com romp road trip kooky crazy girl uptight yuppie um finally kind of loosening his collar and jeff daniels is very good in it as well and, and he's good at kind of he's, he's good at kind of goofy goofy and gauche goofy and guileless um but ray liotta just grabs that movie by the throat and does not let go and he's just got this great sinister dangerous edge without overdoing it um and then at the very end when he comes a cropper he plays it beautifully um and there's just this evident softness there as well um really really super so go find that if you can something wild um you know another movie in the same vein was uh, from a year earlier was martin scorsese's after hours where a night of madness happens to griffin dunn and that's a that's a trip that movie you should go back and check that one out um but anyway i i mentioned before the other radio movie i decided to watch and it's not it's sorry you know it's not thought of as a radio movie it's um 1989's field of dreams Field of Dreams, which was one of Kevin Costner's big movies. Um, and Kevin Costner's star was just rising and rising at that time. It's a very simple story. And it's a real aw shucks slice of Americana and homespun um, Norman Rockwell, super saccharine, nostalgic um, American values um you know traditional heteronormative white american values i would say built around the love of baseball and very simply uh kevin costner's character is um an iowa corn farmer who with his kooky wife played in my opinion in a very irritating sticky kind of way by amy madigan who is ed harris's wife um they decide to kind of go hey wouldn't it be fun to have a farm so they buy this corn farm in iowa and costner's character hears voices in the cornfield that convince him to 
excavate the cornfield and put a baseball pitch there. And that's what he does. And fundamentally, it's a bit of, you know, it, it, it's sort of a, it's, it's a magical fantasy movie whereby the, the pitch, the baseball pitch attracts the ghosts of former baseball players, former and, and former disgraced baseball players or players with their careers cut short for one reason or another and he builds the pitch and the first player to appear is shoeless joe jackson who was one of the chicago white Sox team that were accused of throwing the world series um in oh i want to say 1919 i wasn't there folks i just looked it up um but shoeless joe jackson jackson He's someone I referred to nine years ago when I, was, when I started the, the blog. Because I, I wrote a, a post on cheating in sport. Um, it was after Lance Armstrong had been exposed for the, the drug cheat and the kind of pathological liar that he was. And I just wrote a piece reflecting on, on that. I'd be, um, and I was highly, highly critical of his behavior. But I remember starting the piece with that quote Say it ain't so, Joe. And apparently, it might be apocryphal, but apparently that's what a little kid said to shoeless Joe Jackson, the baseball player, when he emerged from court after after being found guilty of throwing the World Series. And he was a highly regarded figure, a highly regarded baseball player. And the kid just looks up at him with those misty eyes and says, Say it, say it ain't so, Joe. And in a way, Field of Dreams is, you know, it's it's a redemption story, and it's it's a way. I suppose it's a, it's a, it's it's a very gosh, it's a very treacly, saccharine, overly sentimental movie. Um, and I find it, I find it, <laughs> to use a buzzword of the day, I find it a little bit problematic now. I was a huge Kevin Costner fan back in the day. I. I drank the Kool-Aid as a young film buff. Um, I mean, I loved all my old guys. Um, there weren't many 16-year-olds around in 1990 whose most cherished movie poster was a portrait of Humphrey Bogart in his white tuxedo jacket from Casablanca. Um, that was me. Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson, Spencer Tracy, Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Cagney, Glenn Ford... All of these guys, these were these were my guys, um, and then the actors of my time, who I was watching. Of course, I spoke recently enough about Harrison Ford as Han Solo and in Indiana Jones, um, and then as I just was my my kind of adolescent tastes were beginning to change, uh, I definitely jumped on the the Kevin Costner train, which was rocketing out of the station. He, I just. You know, I knew him from Silverado, where he was, he was a great, great character in Silverado. I was aware that he was one of the cast members of The Big Chill, Lawrence Kasdan's um, kind of boomer fest with uh, Glenn Close and Kevin Klein and William Hurt, Tom Berenger, uh, Jeff Goldblum. Um, is it Mary Kay Place that's in that as well? And one of the Tillies, I can't remember if it's Meg, I think it's Meg Tilly who's in that. And it's all these old school pals coming back um, 
after a friend has died and they have this kind of funeral and then a weekend where they hang out together in some lovely house and um and there's a relationship there's a relationship between that and field of dreams not just that kevin costner was and kevin costner basically was the the character who died in the big chill and then he was you know so he was cut out of it it may may have just been his his body in the corpse in the coffin that was cut out of the movie you never see him but he was there the lawrence kasdan also directed silverado so maybe that was the connection um but uh in in any case costner no way out was another movie i jumped on which i thought was fantastic and still stands up very well it's a thriller um sort of a spy washington spy thriller um gene hackman sean young and it's a remake of an old movie called the big clock um with charles lawton in it as the the sort of the baddie in the piece in the original black and white movie and i i know i've mentioned it before on the on the podcast but the funny thing just to mention about the 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 tech the technology journey which being so central to the plot of the big clock and no way out it's all about a portrait an image of the person of the character who is supposed to have killed someone and that person trying to get their hands on that image to make sure it doesn't fall so to make sure the authorities don't get it and wrongly identify the person as the killer and in the no way out version it's it's a photograph it's a photograph that's going to be faxed through to the office and Kevin Costner's character has to make sure that that fax doesn't get through to the person in question again that's I think that's 1986 I'm not sure but in the big clock it was a painting which is I think quite funny um just in terms of what they had to do to sort of go okay well I can't let that painting be found anyway grand so um in any case field of dreams I remember being whatever age I was I think I would have seen it uh, a year after it was made probably 1990 and I was fully subscribed I was like yeah Kevin Costner is the man uh, I I was aware he'd been compared to Gary Cooper he was just seen as representing um, the old school of American actor the old school Hollywood iconic screen actor these men of integrity um, and solid american values um and easy charm and easy good looks nothing fancy nothing fussy nothing dangerous um but charming and i was like yeah kevin costner is the guy and so i remember as a 16 year old loving field of dreams and thinking this is a great great movie a great heartwarming crowd pleasing lovely movie um about overcoming regret about getting a second chance about believing in magic about not abandoning that cynical side of yourself i mean it's stuff i kind of still believe in now you know but i rewatched field of dreams um over over the last week and it doesn't stand up as well as i'd remembered um and it's it's ray liotta as as shoeless joe jackson that actually is there's there's not a blemish on that performance he just holds the screen he holds the screen and again he's just got a little bit of that hint of darkness in him but then that integrity 
and the good looks and he just has this great stillness that bristles with the potential of something else the potential of an emotional explosion um, the potential of danger and it's there even though he's playing this great guy holy such a key character in, in, in the plot um, and again I just say yeah go and revisit it just to appreciate him and again he doesn't have like mon- a monstrous amount of screen time I mean it's, it is the Kevin Costner show um, but it is it's a huge dose of schmaltz and there's something and there was you know the the backlash against kevin costner came fairly early like he was only still in his 30s i think when he made dances with wolves only a year later um and that was even though that was a great success his card was marked he just got a bit you know hubris he kind of went for bigger you know bigger vanity projects after that and he eventually returned, I think, and started taking on smaller character roles. And he still has an actor as a quality that I really like. Um, he's just got a bit of grit um, and something a little bit old school, tough uh, about him that I really like. But in, in Field of Dreams, there's something about his his guilelessness that's just a little bit irritating. And... There's no question, and it was just, I couldn't stop thinking it as I watched it the other day. And I mean, I refer to the boomer love-in that the, that the big chill is. Um, my God, you've never seen such a baby boomer romantic, you, you know, expression of yearning um, than Field of Dreams. I mean, Allen Ginsberg wrote about, you know, having to do your barbaric yawp. Wasn't that Ginsburg? I think it was. Maybe it was, no, yeah, it was Ginsburg. I'm sure it was. Um, the this is kind of the antithesis of that. It's the antithesis of the breakout. It's the antithesis of the rebellion. It's so unbelievably safe, and the values are writ so large across every aspect of the story, and it's so drenched in nostalgia and the conviction that this moral code and uh, vision of what an integral American experience is, it's so convinced that that's wrapped up in baseball. Baseball, which has been riven with corruption historically. Um, it's it, it's extraordinary stuff. And the boomer aspect, of course, is that Kevin Costner's character who is, you know, textbook boomer, born after the war, came up in the 60s, acted out, didn't get on with the da uh, or the parents or their values. Uh, and now as uh, as an adult who's a parent himself has, you know, regrets, regrets that he didn't win his father's approval, regrets that he didn't have that loving connection with his father, you know, that, that generation, the men of the war, um who you know on whose shoulders uh, america was built um and it's played out really literally um in field of dreams until the very end sequence and again as i say there are still things about this movie that work and james earl jones is in it as this recluse uh, reclusive uh, writer a writer who's kind of turned his back on 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 the public um, who was a huge figure in the 60s. Now, in the, in the movie, he's a fictional character, but in the original book I read, 
it was J.D. Salinger, the author of Catcher in the Rye, um, who was famously, uh, became who became a recluse. And J.D. Salinger was infamously very litigious and threatened to sue the movie if they put him in put him in the movie um so they came up with another character um a fictional one and that was played by james earl jones to great comic effect and of course listening he's got such a great voice james earl jones um of course he was the voice of darth vader but yeah he's 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 very good and his his dynamic with costner is actually very good in the movie uh, and Burt Lancaster rocks up at one point. Um, well, I think it was his last movie. And it's funny because Burt Lancaster does a thing that in... I can't remember if it was in Wayne's World or Wayne's World 2. But they lampooned that idea of the great aged Hollywood actor appearing for a moment to bring enormous gravitas and presence to a tiny scene in a movie um and i know in whatever wayne's world movie it was they stopped the movie as a scene was playing out where the guys run into a garage to get get something and they get some they, they get directions from an old timer serving them and then they stop the movie and go no no we can do better than this let's get this guy out of here <laughs> and then they bring in charlton heston <laughs> who just hams it up and you know does this really overindulgent, you know, gravelly old man. Um, but in fact, Burt Lancaster is just slathering on the old school charm and Hollywood presence uh, for his not insignificant part in the movie. And I was going, this is, yeah, this is what Wayne's World were, were, were slagging off uh, a few years later. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a funny thing. Like I was trying to think about the you know movies movies the stories that movies tell and the characters that jump out at us from particular movies it's so contextual it's so contextual it's so they're they're such they're such products of the times that we see them and how we respond to them depends so much on where we're at in our lives it depends so much on what the what the prevailing attitudes and social dynamics and what the cultural backdrop is at the time at the time of their creation and at the time of their being seen and you know it, it, it's one way that it's one way that you can sort of uh, assess the the value of a movie is whether it stands up to repeat viewings over the years and I would never say that Field of Dreams is not a movie worth watching. I think it is, but I think you've got to go into it and go, wow, like this was just this mad nostalgia trip for... Now, the, the movie was actually based on a book. And I think the book was called Shoeless Joe and it was written by a Canadian author, uh, W.T. Kinsella. But as Americans like to pronounce it, Kinsella and Costner's character in the movie is Ray Kinsella and apparently there was a Kinsella character in J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye so there's all these little you know bits of connectivity there and not accidental I can assure you but as I say if you want to feel 
safe and cozy and snuggle up to an idea of mid to late 80s America as being just an incredibly beautiful place to be full of just lovely, well-intentioned, decent people um, where no social issues darken their doorstep. Um, go and watch Field of Dreams. And it's 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 just so extraordinarily explicit. Um, twice, twice in the movie, one of the ghostly figures one of the ghostly baseball players says to Kevin Costner, is this heaven? And Costner says, no, it's Iowa. Um, The first time he says it to Shoeless Joe Jackson. And the second time he says it to, to the, to a solitary baseball player who's still on the field. Ray Liotta's walking off back into the cornfield where they, they vanish. And he says, Hey, why don't you, you know, basically go talk to that guy. And, the player turns around and it's Costner's dad. And then you realize that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the story. It's all about reconnecting with his father and feeling that love and atoning, atoning for the rift, atoning for the rejection of the value system. And how do they reconnect? By playing catch. And that's that's really where the movie concludes. With Costner going. Hey dad. You want to have a catch with me? And it's like sure son. And they throw the ball back and forth. In this hallowed. Piece of iconography really. The iconic image of. My dad never, you know, throwing the ball with me in the backyard. And baseball being. The game that represents America. More so than. American football more so than basketball. So even as a almost as a sort of an artifact of cultural anthropology, it's fascinating. And it's fascinating to kind of put it into that context of how many white American men would just go weak at the knees watching that movie. Um and if you know if you if you know don't take my word for it, what you can do is if you like Go and seek out one of my favorite podcasts, which is The Rewatchables. Uh, the Rewatchables, as I've told you before, a fantastic podcast. If you like movies, you like, and you want to listen to people who are just madly enthusiastic about movies, and they aren't snobby about it, they just love movies. And on The Rewatchables, those, those guys who are, um, yeah, journalists, sports journalists who love movies, and movie journalists who <laughs> love movies and sports, maybe. Uh, men and women, um, all driven by Bill Simmons, who uh, came up in sports journalism, but was also someone who, was, who has a huge love of movies. And they take movies, mainly movies from the 80s on, and revisit them. And they have one on the, on Field of Dreams, which you can find on, on Spotify. And you'll get a good dose of it. And it's funny, it's, a, it's almost a year ago that I was talking about The Natural, and the you know the book the natural and the movie the natural with robert redford a baseball movie and i was again talking about this idea of the sentimentality um almost a sort of a a religious level cultural fervor and affection around the natural and baseball and i was putting it into the context of our our relationship with sentiment and what sentiment says to us where it's located in in our culture and in our thinking um and 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it's yeah, and as you know, the point I was making then and again now is for Ameri- for many Americans, it's located in certain depictions of baseball, um, on you know in the movies certainly, um, and I was trying to work out for myself where where my own and it's cultural sentimentality it's, you know i mean of course it's individual sentimentality that then via the communal experience becomes a collective sentimentality and then it becomes an artifact of cultural truth um and i was just trying to i was trying to kind of put my finger on what i find hits the same spot for me if i'm reflecting on well on on irish culture um and I, 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 oh, I, I struggle. I'm, I'm going to have to revisit that. That's probably that's probably an entire other episode's worth of reflection, because um, it's not. I don't know. It's strange. I mean, and the thing, but the thing is, like, it's what's it connected to? So, in in the case of what I was talking about with field of dreams um, and the natural, it's connected to an American. Um, an American nostalgia for maybe a, a desire for we should have stopped the clock there because that's when things were perfect now it's a flawed vision it's got a blind spot as I said I think it's a very white vision of a perfect America let's not forget baseball was incredibly racist and black people weren't allowed to play um, it was you know Jackie Robinson was the, the, the pioneering player who broke through um there's a movie about that as well which you can check out with the Chadwick Boseman and Harrison Ford um, what's it called something 42 because 42 was his number but you can look that up just put up look up Jackie Robinson movie um, Chadwick Boseman and you'll find it yeah and again very quite a bit of sentimentality in that but at least you're getting a little bit of the the socio-political context um, so then I'm asking myself like in Ireland, when I think of Irish history, um, I'm not sure because I I don't I, nothing comes to mind when I think oh we should have stopped the clock there, and fixed that part of Irish culture in aspic, fixed it and then we can go and wallow and cry sentimental tears of nostalgia at the altar of that image or of that particular iconography um i don't know i mean i i i would probably be more stirred by looking at irish history and irish parliamentarians attempting to stand up to empire and make a claim for irish sovereignty that would probably move me more um maybe speeches of daniel o'connell or parnell um maybe going back to revisit the the pain of of the the treaty that was offered to Ireland after the war of independence and what that cost was which in many ways we're still paying for um i have that sort of small island mentality the small island syndrome and the underdog mentality so that stuff would stir me acts of defiance and so when i suppose if you think you go back to the, you know, from again, for, my, for me, growing up in the 80s and seeing someone like Barry McGuigan 
do very well in boxing. I'd probably have a bit of sentimentality for that. Athletes like Eamon Coughlin and John Tracy, perhaps. Um, and seeing young Irish actors doing well at that time, seeing Gabriel Byrne emerge and um, you know become a become a, f- a face in Hollywood movies, or or Liam Neeson, um, like that sort of stuff would have struck me. And you can't regain that because Ireland isn't that anymore. Ireland's, Ireland has a much more sort of international sense of itself. And because we've continued to sort of probably punch above our weight, a punch above our weight in many areas internationally, uh, in finance and business and in the arts especially, um, it it doesn't have it doesn't have the same resonance. I mean, it's almost you'd almost be a little bit blasé about it. You'd kind of you'd you'd be like, of course, of course, uh, that actor or actress has done well, like Saoirse Ronan, for example. I, th- I think is a, a very special actress I really really like her I find her well I mean I, I <laughs> as you've heard me before talk about how I feel about Little Women Greta Gerwig's um, movie of the Louisa May Alcott novel I just think Saoirse Ronan is astonishingly good in that but she was great in Lady Bird as well also Greta Gerwig there you go thanks Greta keep it coming um, so I don't know I don't know where that sentiment would be located uh, I'll have to come back to that. I'm, I'm sure it'll come to me after I, I finish recording. Anyway, look, there you go. Um, I'm going to wrap it up here. I know there wasn't a particularly um, taut through line in in today's episode, um, and I'm sorry if you're one of the listeners who doesn't who doesn't um, cherish me banging on about movies and actors, but there is there is something there about the um about values i suppose um about values and about what we what we project onto onto characters we see on screen about values being put up explicitly being far less interesting than what's unsaid and what's internalized and what's hidden and so as much as i love and and you know as much as i re- loved and continue to very much like Kevin Costner. He's not that internal. He's a very, you know, here I am uh, kind of guy, which is a very, I guess, middle America sort of vibe. Um, straightforward, no nonsense. Um, what you see is what you get. But Ray Liotta, to me, was the far sexier actor, far more mysterious, far cooler, far more dangerous, and far more moving um and i suppose if i go a step further you know maybe there's a part of me and there was a part of me as a kid and i recognize it now that costner was like a heroic type and he played heroic types and maybe that was that was the fantasy just like harrison ford characters although harrison ford always had that sort of softness in him as well there was a vulnerability that he was very good at at at, at portraying um but nonetheless, very sort of stand-up, straightforward, heroic characters. Um, and you could feel that in their characters. I mean, Harrison Ford probably deviated with Presumed Innocent. Kevin Costner maybe deviated with A Perfect World. And they, they played with a bit of edginess, a bit of moral uh, murkiness. Um, but ultimately, they, they were sort of 
hero figures to me. And, oh yeah, wouldn't that be great if I was that guy? And, you know, and again, you've got, you've got to recall, I mean, I'm looking at them as a kid who wanted to be an actor. And, you know, that, that, that was the fantasy, to be those kind of stand-up, tough, no-nonsense guys who enjoy the respect of other people and do the right thing. And I probably have a little bit of that sort of righteousness in me. But Ray Liotta's vulnerability and pain and his as I said, that that bruised masculinity, that soulful, searing um, sort of furnace of anguish that I feel was always in him, that was something that spoke to me at a much deeper level. I couldn't articulate it. I wouldn't have been able to articulate it as 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 a teenager. But, and in a way, I suppose the fantasy for me was like, wouldn't it be lovely if my sense of anguish and pain and vulnerability looked as cool <laughs> as Ray Liotta. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I think that was, that was, yeah, <laughs> that was really the thing. Um, ah, look, there you go. I had another thought there, but it's gone. Oh no, here it is. I know what it is. There's a fantastic interview. I'll, 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 I'll throw it. I'll, I'll put a link in with the description. There's a really nice interview that Mark Marin did with Ray Liotta about four years ago. And he um, he comes across really well. And it's a nice counterpoint to... Uh, there was an article on The Guardian last week from Hadley Freeman. Hadley Freeman's an American journalist who writes for The Guardian. And she is great on sort of Hollywood and celebrities and actors. She's a great interviewer. And she's a good writer. And she... She had a very difficult interview with Ray Liotta a few years ago where he gave her very little and she wrote an article last week reflecting on that and was very, you know, sanguine about it and just accepting, okay, well, you know, it is what it is and, you know, Ray Liotta was just who he was and grand and there was nothing snarky or nasty. But it was fascinating then to hear Ray Liotta being interviewed by Mark Maron and how much more effusive he was and how much more open and unguarded he seemed and how much how how evidently engaged he was, but I I do think Mark Maron is an exceptional interviewer. Um, he has a great way of getting to the truth with people, and he's just naturally very open and empathetic himself. And I think my theory is that um, celebrities, because he interviews so many like high up celebrities and actors and whatnot, they find it refreshing to to kind of be given that opportunity to not just do their general patter their general shtick so i'll put that link in and you can hear that interview on mark maron's show his podcast um wtf um and it's from four years ago um so yeah really really interesting anyway look there you go sorry this ended up being much longer than i thought and my voice has just about lasted i had to pause a couple of times to cough but i made it so thanks for listening I hope I held your attention I hope you had a good time I hope you're one of those people who shared my admiration of um, of Ray Liotta and I recommend you go and see those those movies I, I referred to in the episode okay you can um, you can throw me some love on social media if you like and thanks to those of you who did that last week um, after the, the first birthday episode some of you were really generous with your your feedback and your supportive uh, comments and thank you so much um yeah oh 
one last thing one last thing no do you know what no I'll do it my friend Sean Whitehill is a great artist and he's just launched his website he's a keen traveller he travels around the world and spends a lot of time in different places and when he travels he likes to draw and he draws what he calls travel mandalas these beautiful beautiful illustrations these beautiful drawings these beautiful works of art that are evocative of mc escher in my opinion because of their symmetrical graphical brilliance um he's just launched his website where you can look at and purchase his artworks so go and find travel man dalas.com travelmandalas.com tell you what I'll throw a link in the description as well because his stuff is worth seeing go and check it out throw him some love and buy some of his art because it's brilliant he's a super talented guy and he's a good friend um, and I look forward to what he what he does next with that so um, Sean if you're listening well done I love your work and I look forward to seeing more okay so yeah thanks again everyone social media the clear out podcast on youtube facebook instagram the clear out two that's the digit two on twitter and you can email me if you like email me email me some suggestions for what you might like me to talk about for a topic you'd like to to raise for a movie you'd like to hear discussed um email me at the clear out live at gmail.com you can support me using the supporter link, which will be there wherever you're listening to the podcast. Or if you want to become a regular contributor to the show and support this independent product that is the Clear Out Podcast, you can do so using the Patreon link. That's patreon.com forward slash the clear out. Some of you have done so. And believe me, I know who you are and I am grateful. So thank you to you. And thank you to you, other people who haven't given me anything. <laughs> but maybe you've listened once or twice. I do appreciate it. Okay, stay safe out there. Mind yourselves. Go stand in a field and decide whether you want to build a sports ground there instead to see if some nice figures will emerge from the darkness to make you cry big fat man tears. All the best. Take care. Mind yourselves. Bye. Bye.